0: This interview was recorded in February 2020, just a few weeks before COVID-19 effectively shut down the theater community and indefinitely postponed the Blue Barn Theater's production of Marjorie Prime, which was to be directed by Susan Bayer Collins. You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Susan Bayer Collins has worked in theater, television, and radio in Omaha, Atlanta, and New York City. After appearing for three years in a cable television show for children at Turner Broadcasting Corporation in Atlanta, she moved to Omaha in 1983, and it has been her home ever since. In 1987, Susie was hired by the Omaha Community Playhouse and served for 28 years as Associate Artistic Director. During that time, she directed and acted in numerous plays and musicals, which include The Secret Garden, The Importance of Being Earnest, Carousel, Ragtime, Not About Nightingales, Hairspray, and Les Miserables as a director, and The Mystery of Irma Vep, Sweeney Todd, Company, and August Osage County as an actor. Mostly retired from the Playhouse since 2014, Susie continues to work as a freelance theater artist. Her recent directing credits include Superior Donuts at the Omaha Community Playhouse in 2017, Much Ado About Nothing for Nebraska Shakespeare in 2018, and Sweat in 2019 for the Playhouse. As a performer, she appeared in Our Town and Circle Mirror Transformation at the Blue Barn Theater and played the title role in Ellen Struve's play, Prince Max's truly awful trip to the desolate interior for a Great Plains Theater Conference play Fest event. An amateur linguist at heart, Susie serves as dialect coach for a wide variety of professional, community, and high school productions in the Omaha area. In addition to a number of awards received for her work as a director and actor, Susie was the recipient of the Omaha Theater Arts Guild Lifetime Achievement Award in 2010, and the Arts and Entertainment Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. In 2014, she received the Nebraska State Governor's Artist of the Year Award jointly with her longtime associate, Carl Beck. In 2019, she was presented with the Great Plains Theater Conference's McDowell Award for her work in the Omaha Theater community. Susie is currently directing the play Marjorie Prime for the Blue Barn Theater, which will open March nineteenth of this year. Act two. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a fifteen-minute intermission. I love it. And now we're at Act two, which is right. Which is good because it's right. It's right getting right to the meat of your time at the Playhouse. Right. So let's talk a little bit about your transition from what you were doing with the caravan to becoming more fully involved with the Playhouse like one of the things that I didn't realize and and I had learned this from Cork's interview actually was I don't know why I guess theater I mean it was in my wheelhouse but it wasn't and so I wasn't aware like that when you did shows with the caravan that then you would bring them back and do them on stage right. uh, at the Playhouse so because could, the
1: caravan couldn't travel in January so we would right. we would be kind of in house yeah yeah
0: Yeah. But so, um, but so you wrote shows as you wrote shows as well for the caravan.
1: Yeah. I don't consider myself a playwright. I consider myself the lucky person was around when Jonathan Cole was looking for a writing partner. We had a a great relationship. He was, uh, he was eventually hired as the music director at the Omaha Playhouse after John Bennett. Then it was Jonathan. And then it was James Boggess. When Jonathan was there, Charles Jones, I was at that time when I first came to the Playhouse, it was 1987. We had moved from Atlanta, it was 1983. Ben was four months old. Carl was hired to be an associate director to Carl, to to Charles, sorry. And uh, I, I came with my family, right? And I didn't have a job, but I had a brand new baby. And I had a mother in Omaha, I'm sorry, in Lincoln, who was not doing well. So I was back and forth to Lincoln a lot to see my mom. And I had this sweet little boy to take with me and I could stay overnight.
0: So I'm going to interrupt you for one second because my brain has faltered. So... (laughs) How did your mom end up in... L- oh, no, that's right. Because you went to West Virginia and then you guys moved to Lincoln. Right, that's right, right. And then she stayed there. Right. She gotcha. stayed there. Yep, yep,
1: yep. Okay. Right. Yep. My dad eventually... No <laughs> worries. My dad eventually left the VA and started working for the regional center in Lincoln, Nebraska yep. as a doctor for the state. Right, so. Because
0: you went to Lincoln. East right. And, yep. I'm right, sorry. right, right. No worries.
1: No, it's a, it's kind of a goofy sort of nomad-y <laughs> moving around thing. <laughs> So Carl started working for Charles in 1983. I started doing some shows, then got to be about six months. And I was like, okay, I need something. I need a part-time something. And I did some shows at the at the Emmy Gifford Children's Theater and I met some great people. I met Matt Kamprath there. I met Julie Valentine there. I met Dan Hayes there. These are just some really great, wonderful theater people. Mike Markey. And Bill Kirk would teach a master's acting class during the day on certain days of the week. And because I, because I was just sort of jobbing is as a jobbing in as a theater actor, they let me take classes with their staff actors with Bill teaching. And that was, that was a great experience. And then I started working for what doesn't exist anymore, which was a city arts council called the Metropolitan Arts Council. I worked kind of, I did PR for them and that was sort of my full-time job and, And then I got hired at the Playhouse in 1987. And so, my first job at the Playhouse, they called me an associate artist, which meant that I was to teach a lot of classes, which was great, and that I was assigned roles in productions. Because Charles Jones's dream for the caravan was that it would have a touring wing aspect, but it would also integrate into the Playhouse itself so that. Sometimes the caravan and the community would do a show together. And the only time that really manifested to a great degree was a production of Julius Caesar that Charles directed on the main stage of the Playhouse. And Jonathan Cole wrote a score for that show. It was like being in a film. And he cast Bill Hudson as a former caravan actor, as Brutus, and he cast me as Cassius. And that was a trip. Yeah. And uh, at the time... I was to be in a kind of future time in this Julius Caesar story, I would be a female general like Cassius was, and that there would be an assumed relationship between Brutus and Cassius. Now back the story up a little bit. Charles had seen a production of Julius Caesar in which there was a love relationship between Brutus and Cassius, only they were both men. Charles thought that was pushing it a little bit for the Omaha Playhouse but he kind of wanted to tell a similar story. So he cast me as Cassius. And and that was a great experience because literally half the the cast of the show was caravan actors and half the cast was community actors. And it was, you know, it may be the last time the Playhouse did a full-fledged non-caravan Shakespeare piece. And of course, having Nebraska Shakespeare then kind of took some of that responsibility or that feeling that we needed to do something. Classic. Classic. Yeah. Shakespeare. Sure. Yeah. So maybe that's part of why it didn't happen again. But, you know, as I remember, it was, it was very well attended and it was kind of exciting. And Jonathan was stellar creating this really interesting, driven kind of score. And Tim Burkhart had the foresight to record the entire performance, you know, back on, you know, I have it on cassette. Right. But it's cool to still have his score. And I remember being in the green room during Julius Caesar and Jonathan came up to me and he said, I think I'm not moving. He he was considering moving somewhere. And he said, I think I'm going to stay here because I think you and I have some writing to do. And it was like, okay. You know, (laughs) I mean, I didn't know. And we had worked on a lot of caravan children's projects together. First time I met Jonathan, He came into a Cratchit rehearsal. I was rehearsing the Cratchit children for the, one of the tours of Christmas Carol It was during the day. Jonathan was filling in as a pianist and a a music director for one of the tours. And, you know, I thought I knew the show and, you know, and who's this guy? He's too cute to be any good. You know, what a brat. (laughs) And Jonathan was teaching these kids the song that the family sings, you know, the other night it's called it's kind of a little lullaby that became this family song at their dinner. And the kids start to sing and he starts to play and he stops them. And I don't know this guy from Adam. And he just starts telling this wonderful story about when he was a kid and he'd travel in a car with his family and how they'd all just sing. And they just sing in the car at the top of their voices and how he wanted to encourage them that they don't have to worry so much about singing perfectly. That this is their time with their family and they just love this part of their Christmas so much. And they should, and I'm like, I love you. <laughs> Can I just have you here all the time with me? He was a remarkable man. Mm-hmm. He was a good friend to our family. He was a great friend of Carl's and mine. And and so we wrote three shows for young people together. The first one was called Conestoga Stories, based on stories of people on the prairie and how they lived in sod houses and how they built cabins and how they managed to settle Nebraska and it was very Nebraska oriented and the caravan took that show out two different seasons. It was very popular because of course, in fourth grade, you study Nebraska history. And then we did an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland called Alice, A Curious Adventure. Gork Raymer was Tweedledee or Tweedledum. Norbert Leo Butts was the March Hare and Matt Campreth was the Mad Hatter we met some really wonderful actors. There's, I still have great friends that are, have moved on to such incredible, incredible lives as, as artists and actors and not all in New York by any means. There was a woman that blew my mind. Her name was Tracy Arnold, and she's been at this brilliant company in Spring Green, Wisconsin called American Players Theater. This is now, I believe her 21st year. She married an actor She built a family. She has a house there. It kind of takes you back to a time when families had theater companies, and they they kind of pass things down. I don't know, like the the lunts or the that's not the right word, you know, the red graves or something. Yep. And she does, (laughs) yeah. So this American rep, they do nothing but royalty free material. So shows you never see anymore, like like. Now I can't think of anything, of course, but they do some very obscure. They're going to do the Mad Woman of Shio next year, and my friend Tracy's going to play the Mad Woman. I mean, she's grown out of her ingenue into this leading lady, into this incredible character woman. At this one theater, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm no. I digress. No, no, no. no but it's for- so fun to have known so many caravan actors, mm-hmm. and you know, still be in touch. And Facebook is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really helped find out where these people are.
0: When did you transition more into directing? Directing. Mm-hmm. As an
1: associate artist, I started getting some directing assignments for the caravan because Charles wanted to kind of pass the caravan off. And rightly so, you know, so Carl would direct the musicals typically for the caravan and I would direct the children's show or the high school show or sometimes both. And so, and then after a while I started directing the musical. So that started me getting kind of a smaller world of experience directing. Mm -hmm. And then Charles had a health issue. Well, no, wait, see. Before that, I was given a main stage show. And it was Diviner, the Diviners in the, in the Drew theater. The Drew theater was pretty new back then. That was my first experience directing for the Playhouse and not the Caravan. And, you know, every once in a while i get an assignment. I got a, a show on the main stage. I directed On Borrowed Time with Frank DeGeorge. And, you know, I'm starting to get this experience, but, you know, I, I couldn't get the job I had back then. Now I don't have the I don't have the criteria. I don't have the what's on paper Mm -hmm. that says I have the training that I'm the person that is qualified Mm -hmm. to have this job. Mm -hmm. I was so fortunate and I, and it's a little sad to me that that kind of opportunity gets less and less Mm -hmm. for somebody like Mm -hmm. I was back then. Mm -hmm. And I think that lack of documents of degrees, you know, I finally got my bachelor's, but I was 64 years old and it wasn't even in theater, you know. I think that led me to be the kind of director that tries to suck in as much information as they possibly can about the subject of the play, about the style of the play, about is it a history of something? Did it really happen? Is it are real people involved? I kind of overdo almost. I think maybe back then, especially in the beginning, I was trying to compensate for what I didn't think I knew. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it still, it serves me and it just kind of fills up my head and my heart Mm -hmm. And then I feel more comfortable about directing a show, but I'll still not walk into a rehearsal without writing everything down. It's very detailed Mm -hmm. and I pretty easily will go off and do something else, but I have to have a plan. I never feel like I can be the kind of director that I see some of my brilliant friends be, but they just want to get in the room with the actors and see what happens. Mm -hmm. I admire that. I've gotten to work with Kevin Lawler as a director, it just feels so organic. Mm -hmm. You know, I've Mm -hmm. seen Susan Toberer do that many times. Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable enough to ever trust myself to just Mm -hmm. think Mm -hmm. I can think that way, but you know.
0: Are you as a performer fairly open to those kind of organic experiences or when you have to lead that, I understand Uh wanting to be very detail oriented. Uh Uh-huh when you're on the other end of the stage right. and you're performing, right. Do you let that wash over you? Do you do you enjoy the organic or do you prefer a more structured structured? Yeah. And maybe prefer isn't the right word. Well, I did is there I, a comfort I was a, level? I got a little
1: freaked out when I first started working with Kevin. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, because it just sort of felt like, what is
1: happening? You know, and it was an unusual, beautiful play Mm -hmm. by Ellen Struve called Prince Max. I'm just going to say the short version. awful. Yeah. But he was, I mean, I just, I just came to totally trust Kevin Lawler. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were things he came up with, like he'd say, well, why don't you just do the lines again? Just, just, just run the lines again. And I thought, oh, great. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. And then he'd have this great idea or a crazy idea and he'd say, okay, I want you to do this scene and I want it to be as big physically as you possibly can be and really overstated and overdone. And you know, Dana, you tell me to stand on a table and bark like a chicken. (laughs) I'll do it. I mean, I'm pretty game, Right. but I didn't see the purpose. But then- I did see the purpose Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because that, of course, wasn't what we did. Right. But it, it informed something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if I trust the person, they can do it, whatever they want. Sure. Yeah. If I feel like I'll follow you, you know where we're going, or at least you have a good idea.
0: Do you have a preference for acting or directing? That's
1: a good question. I can get a lot more anxiety as an actor. Mm hmm. And maybe because I don't do it as much. I think that's why I look back at those days in the caravan or at the rep
0: Mm -hmm.
1: when I just did it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And there wasn't anybody that had a big expectation or I didn't, I didn't worry about that. Mm -hmm. And I, I just thought it was really fun and I couldn't wait to get out there. And it never occurred to me that I wouldn't remember my lines. And now That's a dominant thing. That's, that's really present. You know, here's all the stuff that can go wrong. (laughs) Now get out there. You know, (laughs) I (laughs) mean, it's like, but that doesn't mean I, I don't jump at the challenge. And I remember that when all my time, I loved my job at the playhouse. I loved being there when I was there. I, I it's just a great part of my life and my experience. And there's so many aspects of that that are so wonderful. But there came a time. When I was doing shows and I was, I would make myself so sick, diarrhea sick right before the show. And I would just be miserable and, and worry and think, oh my God, I have to do it again tomorrow. Am I going to get sick again? And then maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. But another and this day. This is you w-
0: as a performer.
1: This is me as a performer, maybe in Steel Magnolias about that time. So I went to a therapist, I went to a psychotherapist because I thought this is the thing I love to do more than anything in the world, more than anything in the world. This is what got me through my young life. Mm -hmm. It kind of saved me. And now I dread it. I'm terrified of it. And so I went to this therapist and I told her why I was there. And we talked about it maybe for five seconds. And then we talked about a whole lot of other stuff. (laughs) And she gave me some wonderful tools to use and to, I still use them Mm -hmm. and I, and it got a lot better. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was playing Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd, I was almost back to just can't wait to get out there. Kind of, kind of attitude feeling, you know, Mm -hmm. stage fright is a real thing. It's, it's crippling. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: People used to ask me all the time. So what do you prefer, directing or acting? And and i used to say it it didn't matter and and for a time it didn't matter mm-hmm. as long as i was doing something in the performing arts cuz uh-huh. that's that's what fed me that's what kept right. that's what kept me sane right Yeah. It, it, i always I always say that it's my profession <gasps> i have a job that pays the bills but the theater is my profession that's how I I like I, that. that's how i always view it yeah But yeah, it's, it's just that it didn't matter to me one way or the other, but after having directed Mm -hmm. for so many years, the few times that I got a chance to actually go back out on stage Mm -hmm. were such cherished times because Mm -hmm. it was, they were few and far between. Right. I totally understand that. So, yeah. So, and, and of course, when I got my Degree in theater, it was on the acting side. It uh-huh. was. It wasn't on the directing. The directing for me didn't come until later. Too. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I'm right there yeah. with
1: you. Yeah, a Bland Roblin and I have joked about the fact that you know when you're directing, it's the whole ball of wax, and so you worry and you fret about a lot of things. But when you're the actor, you know I did so little acting for my time at the Playhouse that when I got to do something, it was like I just have to worry about myself. <laughs> I just have to worry about me. That's your problem. <laughs> and there was something very kind of like feeling like a kid again mm-hmm. to be an actor again that I I loved. I got to do a production of Our Town at the Blue Barn. I hadn't acted in a long time when I did that and I think maybe I was doing Prince Max at the same time and then I I got to do another like a five person play at the Blue Barn called Circle Mirror Transformation and those were that was that was great. That was a good feeling.
0: Let's take a moment to talk a little bit about like a huge chunk of your time at the Playhouse dealt with A Christmas Carol. Yeah.
1: Maybe and, 99 productions I had something to do
0: with. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that's an entity all its own. Mm-hmm. And it really, and and I've never done A Christmas Carol, but I from what I've heard from other people who have talked about it, Talk to me about how that production works because it takes so many people and right. how did it come up to, I mean, it's brilliant to to have more than one director right. and everybody takes their own chunks. So, right. and that obviously started, it, it was Charles Jones, it's Charles Jones's script His adaptation. and you and Carl- For so many years. And Joanne Katie. Right. So talk about Mm -hmm. that whole process and how Mm -hmm. that came together and how it became the well-oiled machine that it is.
1: Right. What made it require kind of this Mm factory-like assembly Mm -hmm. was the fact that Charles had created this gem on the main stage of the Playhouse, trying to get it out of debt. And it was so popular, they thought maybe they'd do it another year you know it was never intended to be the annual production in the beginning mm-hmm. but then he had the caravan and he thought what if what if this show went on the road well then the caravan's going to have to swell in numbers because you can't do christmas carol with the lean caravan cast of maybe 10 or 11 12 people so then there would be these auditions that charles and joanne would go to sometimes carl national auditions, non-equity, regional auditions, Southeastern Theater Conference, Midwest Theater Conference. Those were two of the big kind of wells to draw from. And they started casting and touring very quickly, a Midwest tour and an East Coast tour. And for a short time, there was a West Coast tour. So there was a while that in a very short period of rehearsal, there were three tours of Christmas Carol with three separate casts, three separate sets, three separate buses, trucks, all that, and the main stage production. So Charles was, was kind of trying to hold on to the main stage production and still keep these tours going. So you would sort of learn gradually by taking a little piece of something.
0: So I'm going to interrupt you for a second. So were you at that time when all of this was starting to get formed and the tours were starting, were you at that point just involved with the caravan or were you involved with the main stage at that point? In the beginning, it was just the caravan. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But it, it didn't last too long before he started incorporating us in right. the main and stage were too. were you
0: directors? Were you and Carl directors of that or were you in the show?
1: No, I never did Christmas Carol as an actor. Okay. Right. I, that never, when I did the caravan, that wasn't an option. Sure. The touring of Christmas Carol happened after I, I did after my you year had, of oh, caravan. sure, sure. Yeah. So,
0: yep. Okay. Yeah.
1: So there are people who probably have better ability to tell you dates, but... Um, So like maybe the entry into, into Christmas Carol as a director is to direct the Cratchit scenes, the family scenes that are so different from these big group scenes, like the Fezziwig ball or the party that's held by Scrooge's nephew at his home, where there's dances and music. You can rehearse those Cratchit scenes in a little classroom with a table and a bench and a few things, you know? And so... I remember Charles had me come and watch him. I mean, I think I came twice where he worked with the Cratchits that were doing the main stage. And then he kind of said, so Suge, go do that with the tour, you know? And so you sort of learn by crashing. And uh, I would have certain amounts of time during the day where the Cratchit actors would report to my classroom, where there was this permanent set of the Cratchit house that was always in the classroom. So the Cratchits always rehearsed in the classroom and in the dance studio, there was a big rolling bed that could be used for Scrooge scenes with the ghosts. So Carl was in charge of all the Scrooge arc. If he had a new Scrooge, that Scrooge stayed with Carl and he learned how he began the play in the counting house. And then he started to meet the ghosts and he went into his past. And then, you know, he met Christmas present at the top of act two. And then he meets the future and he has his transformation and he ends the play. And so that actor never had to deal with 800 directors, not that they were 800, but, you know, so that was quite a gift to the Scrooges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Carl just really, he... He kind of took on the mantle of the main director of Christmas Carol Tours over time. And so it wasn't your job to invent the wheel. Mm -hmm. It wasn't your job to, you know decide to do it this way? Because as soon as you made a decision like that, you found out, well, the reason he can't exit left is because there's a giant group of people storming onto the stage. You know, there's a method to this madness. Right. And you had to stay in the parameters. Mm -hmm. But once you understood what the parameters were, you always had these new personalities. You had these new actors, you had these new Mrs. Cratchits and Martha Cratchits and, Mm -hmm. and Bob Cratchits coming into your room. And you'd learn a little something, or you'd learn something from the actors that kind of fed into what can be shared in this story that we can tell as this family that becomes sort of the iconic heart of the play. And then they kind of move you into some of the smaller scenes, like the scene between young Scrooge and Belle in Christmas Past, or the scene where the charwomen steal the sheets, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun. And then my biggest nail biter was I was told I had to start learning the street scenes. <laughs> and there's four street scenes in the show and every single person in the cast is on stage practically all the time in Camden Town, singing God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, singing Here We Come A-Wassling, wandering, meeting vendors, buying crap, dancing, doing crap, you know, and they have to look great doing it, right? <laughs> so I remember sitting with Joanne Katie She was staging the street scenes after Charles had stopped doing it. And everybody keeps passing down, right? And that was something that may not be as easy to do when there are so many people in the confines of the building itself, in the playhouse. I mean, there was a, this was a time that we could have pulled that off Mm -hmm. with three tours, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for my first season staging the street scenes, Joanne was only a scream away and she sat with me when I staged the first company. And then by the second company, I think I was on my own. And now someone like a Bland Roblin, for instance, first came in when Carl and I were there directing cratchit scenes, branching out to the smaller scenes. And now it's a Bland that is doing tour street scenes and mm-hmm. lots of, lots of other parts of the play. So I remember Carl and I made a video. You know how you have, a, you get a DVD and then there's like the director's commentary. Yes. So we had a video that, which we do of every show, you know, and there was a video of a really good touring production uh-huh. that we had done. And Carl and I sit there at microphones and go, now be careful here because people can get really, you you really want to keep the atmosphere, you know, and you're talking about things that might help somebody ask to come in and direct. Sure, These are the things we're looking for. These are the things I want you to, to kind of maintain the mm-hmm. integrity of this piece. Mm-hmm. As many times as I've done it, Dana, it's important. And it, and it means a lot to me. It means a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it has a great story to tell. I think it was unique the way Charles crafted it. It's, it's It has less severe darkness in it than a typical Dickensian version of the story. Mm-hmm. But because of that, families can come and really enjoy it with, with children. And there's so much music. But because there's so much music, the text is incredibly spare. So this scene where young Belle tells Scrooge in Christmas Past that she can't marry him because... He no longer cares as much for her as he does for this gold coin. Their scene is so spare. Mm -hmm. They have so few lines to get this whole, oh, we're together. Oh, no, there's a problem. I'm sorry. I'm giving you back the ring. I wish you everything in your life, but I can't be part of it. And so when young actors come in and they see this, They don't see all the possibilities that are inside those few lines. Mm -hmm. And so you have maybe an hour's rehearsal with them where you try and convey. And that's tricky, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but it's always a challenge and it's interesting. And after that first hour rehearsal where it's just you, you continue to see them. Mm -hmm. You see them in act run-throughs and in tech run-throughs and you keep working with everybody. And and hopefully they have the same feelings that you hope these casts will bring Because if they don't feel that way about the play, about the show, if they kind of treat it like, ah, it's Christmas, Carol, that bleeds that, Mm -hmm. you know, then it becomes not what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, as cynical as Carl Beck can be, (laughs) he always had such a strong integrity and a a feeling about the show Mm -hmm. and kind of a protective. Mm -hmm. I think we all feel protective about Charles's work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Would you say that A Christmas Carol was the most challenging piece that you had to direct?
1: No, I wouldn't. But I would say in the beginning, what I learned about musical theater, I learned from Christmas Carol. And there isn't a piece of music theater that I'm asked to work on that I don't have some little piece of Christmas Carol that comes into play. And what I've learned about musical staging, I am not a choreographer. I never had a class or any experience in staging a musical. And these musicals today, they start singing at the beginning and maybe they say a few lines in between, but there's so much sung through. And during that song, the set could change three times. And so the requirements of a director to have a sense of musical staging is fierce, you know? And I've always felt underqualified for that. And so. I would never, if I could help it, just skip a rehearsal where the choreographer was working with my cast. Or I would never skip a rehearsal where they were just singing the music. Because did I hear you say this in an interview one time that why wouldn't you be at the music rehearsal? You've right. only heard the cast right. album. And
0: it may have been just the the one with, with Cork. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of times that... Especially when I first started, I mean, I do it now still, but I mean, it, and I don't get it as much anymore. But I used to when I first started that you know I would go and sit in those music rehearsals, and actors would look at me and be like, "Why would you even want to?" We're just sitting there plucking through the music, and I'm like, "But then I get to hear your voice in my head, right. and not somebody else, and that helps me right. as a director, right? Because I'm I'm not going to be, you know." directing Michael Crawford from, you know, from Phantom. It's going Not to be- Not this week anyway. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's going to be you. Uh-huh. So I want your voice in my head. Yeah. Do you have a preference for directing plays or musicals? Is there one that you like directing more than the other, a style? I think
1: the the- sort of handicap that I feel about my ability to direct musicals, Mm -hmm. that ability to really stage something the way a really great storytelling choreographer can do. That keeps me from saying probably that I love directing musicals because it's hard for me and I have to work really hard and there's a lot of people involved and they all have conflicts. Remember that? (laughs) And the hardest thing you ever have to do is the schedule, the rehearsal Mm -hmm. schedule. And you feel like once you get through that thing, that you've almost finished the show. I mean, it, there's just a feeling of accomplishment to have cast the play musical and created the rehearsal schedule <laughs> because it's like, okay, well, the die is cast. You know, here we go. I also, when Carl and I were at the Playhouse, there was a lot of responsibility that was pretty much on our shoulders to always direct what we called the bookend musicals the big musical in the fall and the big musical in the spring. And rarely did anybody but Carl or I do those. And musicals were considered money makers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we put this pressure on ourselves and we just decided this was how it would be. But we felt as staff members that it was our job to kind of do those big shows. As a result, I often did more musicals than wonderful small plays like I'm getting to direct right now, like Marjorie Prime. So I have a little bit of a hunger for those kind of shows right now. Mm-hmm. I I loved getting to direct Sweat or Superior Donuts, Marjorie Prime, because I needed a little break from. Although they were fantastic experiences, mm-hmm. a, a Les Mis or a a hairspray or you know some of these big shows mm-hmm. that kind of terrify me, <laughs> but are fun mm-hmm. and I. I love partnering with choreographers. I think choreographers are amazing people. I, I don't think like they do, mm-hmm. and so to be around somebody like Roxanne Nielsen or Melanie Walters or Kathy Wielden is just—it's just like being in a in a class. All three of those women, I would say, have an ability to move the story forward always in what they do. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. Yeah. I can remember Roxanne Nielsen saying to me one time we were working on Once on This Island and she had researched this movement for the people on the island that had to do with their wrists pulling way back and their feet really flexing and a kind of, I don't know, a Haitian kind, I couldn't tell you, but she worked really hard to kind of deliver that to her performers and work with them. And there was, you know, how you are in these times when the show isn't it isn't performing yet. You're still in rehearsal and things are hard. And she said, I don't think anybody's gonna even notice that I've done all this and that their hands are perfect. And I said, Yeah, but we know. Mm. We know. I am so proud of what you've, you know, it mm-hmm. just things like that blow my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and to work in community theater as long as we have, you know, the the thrill is to get this disparate group of people and we all kind of come into a room together. And we start here and we end up, oh my God, we end up here. That is such a, it's such a high for me. Mm -hmm. I just, I just, I I can't quite get enough of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yes, I love doing musicals, but I have been maybe saying no to them a little more than I, Mm -hmm. than I would when they were my assignment. How many
0: years did you work at the Playhouse?
1: Close to 28. It was 27. And then I kind of came back for six months.
0: Yeah. How many shows did you direct?
1: I don't know that I have a number for you.
0: Yeah. It's a lot. It is a lot. It's a lot.
1: Yeah. I, Which is why, yeah. you know, I provided you with a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. for this interview. And the only reason I did it is because I have trouble remembering sequence in, mm-hmm. in my life because it was all there. Mm-hmm. So it's the same building. It's the same time. It's just show after show after show. So I, for a long time, I could tell time by it. It was like, oh yeah, that happened when we did Carousel. And then I could look up when we did Carousel and I'd know what year it was, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I got to do a lot of projects uh-huh. and uh, they were very disparate. There was a lot of different projects. Some of them, some of them I didn't like as well as others, but I also learned along the way that I had to find something that I absolutely loved about everything I did or I I wouldn't be happy and I couldn't do it well. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any favorites that you did? At
1: yeah, the Playhouse? sure. I was really, really proud of our production of Carousel at the Playhouse. I love doing a play in the Drew Theater. It was a Tennessee Williams play early on and it was based on a true event. It was called Not About Nightingales and it was about a prison system in a Southern state.
0: I saw that show.
1: And there was a punishment that they would put on the prisoners where they'd put them in a room and turn up the radiators and
0: Jim Jim McCain was in that, right? Or was that that one or was it a different one?
1: You're thinking of Cliff Radcliffe, maybe. Cliff was phenomenal and Bill Hudson was in it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Speaking of Jim McCain, who is just one of my favorite human beings on the planet, um, I would say uh, Man of No Importance was one of my favorite projects.
0: That's the one I was thinking of. Yes. I mean, I did see not about Nightingales, but A Man of No Importance. That was yeah. the one I was thinking of.
1: It was fun to really, really fun to work with Timothy Shu and, and I kind of, Carl and I sort of co-directed Les Mis. I mean, my name was kind of on it, but we were together the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then we also were together when he was directing Young Frankenstein and, mm-hmm. and I was in the room. That was our last year together. So mm-hmm. we thought we'd just team up on both shows. It was really fun. I loved the, f- the first show I did for the Playhouse, which was called The Diviners. Bill Hudson did a beautiful performance in that and Roxy Versace, who some people who are as old as me will remember we lost Roxy way too early, but she was sort of a magical actor. she could uh, she was the most spiritual person I ever met, I think, but she didn't, you know practice religion. She just kind of found souls and rocks and things like that and mm-hmm. she was playing this very rigid, religious woman in the diviners. And that was very difficult for her. Yeah. I have a lot of favorite shows that I did at the playhouse. I loved, oh my God, I did this show called crowns about African American women in church and their hats. Mm. Oh my God. And the people I got to work with at that show, just amazing. I loved working on having our say with Camille Matoyer Moten and her sister Lynette Moore. Mm -hmm. That was like a present. Mm -hmm it's the story of the Delaney sisters mm-hmm. who lived through so much of the civil rights era and they lived great. into their hundreds.
0: That was a great regret. I so wanted to see that show and I don't remember what I was doing at the time and I never got over there and saw it. And Playhouse does a lot of shows. Yeah.
1: 10 shows a year. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's a lot to see. I got to, I got to work with Jim Boggesson and and Kathy Tyree and and Dave Wingard had a small role in it, but it was, uh, the story, it was Ella, Mm -hmm. Ella Fitzgerald's music. That was, that was exciting. I did a, a production that I adored of, of the importance of being earnest. That was great. You know, we don't do classic plays at the playhouse very often. We did some dialect workshops before we even started. And we spent a lot of time at the table before we stood up and I don't always have time for that.
0: You mentioned dialects, and that, that is something that you are really known for. I mean, it seems like any time theatrical production calls for a dialect of any kind, your name ends up in the program. <laughs> I've always loved So you've, uh, you're, you're like Omaha's dialect coach.
1: <sighs> yeah, I wish I had the, the, the real qualifications for it. I just have uh, a passion for it. Mm-hmm. And it was instilled in me. For four semesters, I took dialect from William Morgan at the University of Nebraska Theater Department. And that was really important to me. And later on, when I went back to school in my 60s, I took a linguistics class. And I realized that what I had been working with and what I'd been trying to do was linguistics. (laughs) And I had never really quite put that together. But I had learned the phonetic alphabet so that when you hear someone speak, you should be able to write what you're hearing. You should be able to write down exactly what you're hearing. Like it's a piece of music and somebody could look at it and they could sing it and they could say, what do you take me for? fool?" You know, and it's because of the way you wrote it, they're going to say, what did you, what do you take me for? A fool like that. And I was so excited on NPR recently. There was a man that was being interviewed who was the dialect coach in Hollywood, most recently for Little Women. And one of those great NPR interviewers was talking to him. And he said, she said, can you teach me a dialect? And he said, okay, I hope I get this right. He said, I can teach you. Oh, I've told you this before. We were at a dinner party and I told you
0: this. Yeah, but it's great.
1: He said, I can teach you a way into an Irish dialect. And she said, okay. And he said, say the word quail. And she said, quail. Say the word oil. Oil. Say the word beef. Beef. Say the word hooked. Hooked. Say whale. Whale. Oil. Oil. Beef. Beef. Hooked. hooked. Now, if you can say it on your interview or say it to yourself really fast, I whale think, oil beef hooked. <laughs> whale oil beef hooked. Whale oil beef hooked. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. (laughs) I mean, my way before I heard that story into an Irish dialect was to say patio furniture. (laughs) Patio furniture. Yeah. yeah, But I thought that was great. (laughs) Anyway, I like reading about dialects. I, I, there are certain people that I follow and that I, I can learn from easier than others. There are some dialects that still are hard for me that I I don't trust myself to teach, mm-hmm. but I'll take on the challenge. I'm often asked to teach a dialect I've never taught before. I'm currently working over at Burke High with their production of The Drowsy Chaperone. And if you think about it, The Drowsy Chaperone has a British butler, a crazy Latin lover, an American girl who feigns a French accent, and a bunch of gangsters that speak Brooklynese.
0: <laughs> so I have a lot of work
1: to do over yeah. there. It's really fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> How many... Different dialects. Would you say you're fluent in? And Comfortable fluent isn't with the right word? Yeah, a comfortable teaching. Comfortable maybe teaching. Sure. Oh, maybe twenty. Yeah,
1: that's pushing it. Maybe hard to say. A- anything? You know, over- because there's so many different American Southern accents. Sure. There's an there's a sort of cultured Southern accent that their R's disappear, like a British person, like Scarlett O'Hara. Right. You know, but if you're a Holly Hunter. Kind of Southern accent than your Scarlett O'Hara, yeah. you know. It's 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 interesting.
0: Yeah, it kind of goes back to the thing that you were saying about with uh, Roxanne Nielsen earlier about well, you know, is anyone paying attention? Right. You never know. There's you gonna never be, know. You never know. There's going to be somebody that's going to be there and say, "Oh, that's not the right Southern dialect because I'm from that part of the South." Right. right. So and we don't just, do that, you, right? And we don't do that. You never know who's going to be in the audience, right. so you right. have to make That's it right as accurate legit. as possible. I know exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What year did you leave the Playhouse? Two thousand
1: fourteen was our last year. Was your last? And year? then I started going to university to finish my degree, mm-hmm. and then I came back to the Playhouse in January of two thousand sixteen, and I had mm-hmm. guest directed. Hillary Adams was at the Playhouse, and I guess directed a Little Women production for the Caravan. That was a great experience. But I came back to the Playhouse for six months before Hillary, uh, before Kimberly mm-hmm. came, and I directed. I kind of jumped into Carolina Change,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Calendar Girls. I think. Yeah, yeah. What's and, that line from Al Pacino? And they
0: pulled me back. And in. they pulled me back. That <laughs> <laughs> was fun, they though. Reeled you back in. Yeah. And now you do freelancing around town. You've done yeah. some, you've done you've done a couple of things. You've done some guest directing at the Playhouse. Yeah,
1: yeah. Superior Donuts, mm-hmm. Sweat, mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about Marjorie Primal. I think this is a really well written play, and it's for people. And if you look at it from a what's it about aspect, it seems a little like science fiction. It takes place in 2060. A woman in her fifties and her husband have her mother living with them who is struggling with Alzheimer's. And in this time, you can go to a place and you can purchase a prime. And a prime is, a, is AI, artificial intelligence. It's probably some kind of hologram. But they have purchased for the mother who they keep telling her the stories of her life because she can't hold on to them. And they recreate her husband who died 10 years earlier. But this is not her elderly husband. The prime has arrived at her request to be in his early 30s. And so in our production, A Bland Roblin plays the husband, Julie Huff is his wife. Ruth Rath is her mother. And Ben Beck is playing the prime, her husband, Walter. And so Walter will only be as capable of of becoming who he's supposed to be because you tell him who he is. Marjorie tells him stories of who he is and their experience together. Hopefully the daughter does. The husband does. And sometimes people tell him stories that weren't really true, but maybe how they wanted them to have been. Mm. Or they may tell this prime a story that keeps something out, that leaves a part of the story out because it was traumatic. Throughout this play, there will be ultimately three primes. There are only four people in the play. And there is so many stories. It's full of stories. We're trying to hold on to this woman's memories. And then the primes start to be used for another reason. The primes start to be used by the person who's lost a loved one, who is grieving so strongly that they want to bring them back somehow. And we don't know if that really works or not. It's, I'm trying to tell it in sort of a mysterious way because it is kind of mysterious Mm -hmm. and we're, We're having a rehearsal structure that is different than anything I've ever done. We rehearse, we begin by looking at the scene we're doing and we're identifying the stories that are told. And then we go around the room and we get everybody's idea of how they saw what happened. And here's how I saw what happened. And some of what happens in this play and what's being remembered is highly traumatic. And so we're going to work our way toward improvising those scenes because we just started rehearsal about a week ago. And we're going to create a tableau. I'm going to ask you to tell me the first part of the story and make a picture and freeze it. And you can talk to each other and you can figure it out. And boom, there it is. Now let's move a little further in the story and let's get to this landmark and create this picture. Maybe four of them. And then we're going to improvise the scene based on getting to these. It's a lot of work, but the play's not very long. Mm -hmm. And we have a good amount of time. And I just thought, what if we all had these collective memories and we all had been, our bodies had been in them. How would that feed the performance of this play where Mm -hmm. all we do is tell each other, remind each other what happened, encourage each other to tell the prime something that it needs to know. And the other, another character may think this is not good. Mm -hmm. We don't want our mother to remember this, you know. Mm -hmm. Woo. Yeah. Oh, he's a brilliant writer, Jordan Harrison. I'm so grateful to Susan Toberer for asking me to direct it.
0: Now, is this the first time that you've worked with Ben on a show? No, but it's been a long time. I mean, I guess he did a Christmas
1: Carol tour once. Mm-hmm. and So he was part of the flyby and mm-hmm. maybe he was young Scrooge. But before that, he was maybe 17 years old. So it's been a long. has been a while. It's been like 20 years, maybe. Yeah. 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 I'm so grateful to get to work with Ben.
0: Is there any shows left that you absolutely want to direct that's on a bucket list that you haven't done yet?
1: There's this play called The Humans. I don't know if I'm smart enough to direct it. I think that's the name of it. I think it's really interesting and a little bit terrifying. I don't know. I like to read plays. I'm grateful to still be on the play reading committee at the Playhouse. And every once in a while, you know, the the blue barn might shoot a couple scripts my way to just see what my reaction is. Mm-hmm. There's some wonderful older plays that I adore too. I was in a production twice of The House of Blue Leaves by mm-hmm. John Guare. Mm-hmm. I love his work. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite. Were you Bunny? I was Bunny the first time, and I was Bananas the second time. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God, I love that play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We put that play on the main stage of the Playhouse the second time I did it. The first time was at Nebraska Rep. Uh I was Bunny. Okay. And then years later, Carl directed it on the main stage of the Playhouse. And there's some wild stuff going on. You know, there's this young man who's part of this family that has come to New York on the day that the Pope has come to New York and he's going to blow up the Pope. I mean, that's the. That's the premise that starts this crazy play where a man who's a zookeeper at New York Central Park kind of has this crazy wife who he treats like a dog and her name is Bananas. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. So I was in the show. Dave Wingert was in the show. I'm going to not remember everybody, but you know, oh, Ree Davis. Oh my God. She was bunny. She was so wonderful. So we're doing this play and all I can remember from it, the whole experience, and I love the play, but all I remember is some night we came out and we went to bow and this woman just charged down the aisle with her program, waving it in the air and said, you want to see a piece of shit? There it is. And she tore up the program and she threw it at me and she walked out. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, maybe we should rethink the kind of material (laughs) we're putting on the main stage of the playhouse. And then I directed a show called uh, Tale of the Allergist's Wife, (sighs) where we had a grandmother played by Barb Ross. Yes, who apparently
0: had quite the mouth because I remember and I was going to bring that up. I I mean, not that, but I mean, when you said about this is a piece of, you know. (laughs) because there were quite a number, as I recall, letters to the public pulse about what a horrible show that was.
1: I saw it at Manhattan Theater Club with a whole audience full of little old ladies who were, you know, Coming in from Westchester to see right. this play. Oh my God, it was funny. And it was clever. But all anybody could see was, oh my God, a woman is kissing another woman on the stage and Ross is saying the F word. Yeah. And I think, to be honest with you, I think there was a bit of a campaign. I could be wrong about that. Right. But that almost buried the playhouse. I mean, <laughs> that was some, a big kind of bad reputation to get past. Yeah. And so that's when they began to separate the Drew Theater from the main stage. Mm -hmm. They had a kind of a campaign. That's not the right word for it. Find your stage. Mm -hmm. If you choose to get a season ticket for the main stage, you can be assured that everything is G-rated.
0: And now there's a little more bleeding on the main stage, a little more. That's always a fine line to walk, right? Is especially for a place like the Playhouse, because you have your people of a a more mature age who are supporting the theater with their money Mm -hmm. and want to see more of the classics and more of the G-rated stuff. And then you have to be mindful of the young whippersnappers Mm -hmm. who want to see the more edgy things. So Mm -hmm. I always found the, the find your stage. I thought that was really clever because Mm -hmm. it was the best of both worlds, because you could have like your little mini season if you wanted to just do the edgy stuff at the drew. Right. And then the more, you know, laid back stuff at on the main stage. And then if you wanted to do both, you could. Right. So you were cultivating. And the first year of find your stage
1: was August Osage County.
0: And you could cultivate the new money, so to speak, Uh for the younger, you know, uh, audience members that were eventually gravitate, as we all know, as we get older to the more main conservative, yeah. conservative yeah. viewpoints. So it's, you know, it's that but, life you know, you cycle. You can find
1: the older people who love the edgy stuff.
0: There, uh, and that, and that and is... And the younger
1: people who kind of are a little bit stick up their butts yeah, about things. Yeah, that, and
0: that is true. Yeah. That is true. I've, I have seen that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you have Marjorie Prime coming up? Yep. And then anything else that you have that's that's coming? I don't have a plan.
1: What's next? I'm doing a. I'm excited about doing a staged reading with Sarah Brown of Romeo and Juliet. That's performing in a few little places. uh, With Juno Swans. Juno Swans, not necessarily Nebraska Shakespeare. Sure, but yes, that's her. That's her thing. So it's a Juno Swans production.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, yeah.
1: We start that right after I opened Marjorie Prime. And those readings are really fun. And she's always so adventurous. And it'll be and a good Marjorie time. And Marjorie
0: Prime opens when? March 19th,
1: 2020. Yeah. Yeah. We open on a Thursday. That's such a cool thing about the Blue Barn. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: What is your favorite color?
1: Oh, that's hard. My favorite color to look at is a really warm pink. Yeah.
0: If your path hadn't taken you down the theater path, If you couldn't be an actor, if you couldn't be a director, Mm -hmm. what would you be doing?
1: I would be, not that I have any talent for these things, but I would either be a graphic artist Mm. or I'd be a linguist. I fell in love with graphic design when I worked at the state, the television station and had to do stuff on a screen. Yeah, And I had this really amazing mentor who taught me about the value of white space and I don't know. He he was just great. And I, and I did a little bit of that sort of work when I worked for the Arts Council and I, mm-hmm. I kind of enjoyed it. I didn't know anything what I was doing, but I could get into that.
0: Where's the favorite place that you've traveled? Because I know you have traveled. Yeah. Because I've seen your pictures on Facebook. So uh-huh. where's your favorite place?
1: Here's the place I would go back to in a okay. heartbeat. Aix-en-Provence in Provence, France. Mm. Yeah. I could live in that little town. It's not a little town. So it's in the south of France. It's where they, all the lavender grows. It's where Van Gogh had the light that allowed him to paint some of the images that he painted. And um, yeah, I'll go there. Okay. Again.
0: Is there a place that you traveled to that you're like, oh, hell no. You can get me there back there in a million years.
1: The Soviet Union, which doesn't exist anymore. We toured to the Soviet Union in 1989, when words like perestroika and glasnost were brand new, and it was very difficult to be there.
0: Steve Priestman talked about that a little bit. He toured that place yeah. with his two children and his wife. Yeah. Yeah. I'll bet he did. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit. That, that will be coming up in a couple of Oh, couple good, of good, good. But yeah. yeah, we talked about that. When you said that, I'm like, oh, that's right. He talked about that tour. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Three weeks in yeah. the Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. With quilters.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Quilters. I love that show.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: That's one of those shows that I never grow tired of seeing. Anybody could do Quilters. Every theater do Quilters once a year and you will have me as an audience. Oh, member. that's so cool. I, I don't know why, but that's one show that I never grow tired of. Yeah. There was a kind of a thing that was going
1: on where Nebraska ETV was really interested in maybe doing a, a you know, like a, a four television version of the of yeah. our production of Quilters. And uh, we wrote to the... Authors and these two women, Barbara Damachek, and I'm not going to remember the other woman's name, they had created that piece for the Denver Theater Center. And so it, it taught me a lesson about anything you write, it, that piece didn't belong to them. Oh. As I understand it, they didn't have, they, 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 they couldn't, le- do it? yeah, they oh, couldn't okay. legally give us the rights.
0: Sure. Yeah. Sure. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well. If you could sit down and have lunch with anyone, who would you have lunch with? You know, lunch.
1: I I know. I'm having it with Julia Child. There you go. I think that would be the best lunch. Wouldn't it? And there's something, I think I just love her, but I get confused. And I think I love Meryl Streep's version of her.
0: I love Dan Aykroyd's version of her. Oh, God. (laughs) Well,
1: and it kind of goes deeper for me because in the film, Julie and Julia, Meryl Streep plays Julia Child, Mm -hmm. that is the closest to who my mother was physically and vocally and movement wise. Mm. And there are very few people in this world left that remember my mom. So I went, I remember going to it and I went to it again and I took Ben and I took Carl. And as soon as Meryl Streep showed up, I just started crying and we came out of the movie and Carl said, oh my God, that's your mother. So I have all mixed up about Meryl Streep, my mother and Julia Child. So I figure I'll have lunch with Julia well, and we can speak French. Okay. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Oh my God. I'd be starstruck.
0: Do you have a favorite type of music that you listen to? <sighs> I'm a folky
1: from way back. So, I mean, I grew up with Joan Baez and Judy Collins and Peter, Paul and Mary and Pete Seeger and Donovan and, and, and those people are part of my history. You know, there's a certain age you are when you start listening to music and somehow that music kind of, you don't graduate to the next decade of music very easily. Yes. But I'm a huge, I mean, I'm pretty predictable, but I'm a big Paul Simon fan. When I was in eighth grade, I would sit in class and just write his lyrics down and dream that I would marry him. (laughs) And uh, James Taylor, I remember seeing him when he first came to Pershing Auditorium in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he stood on stage in a flannel shirt and bare feet and sang Sweet Baby James. I also have learned various wonderful music from the shows I do. And, and it's the plays I do that sort of introduce me to new music, to new reading, to new, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reading three books right now on memory and a book called The Primer of Forgetting because of this play I'm doing right. from Marjorie Prime, you know? So right. a lot of my interest is spurred by what am I working on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But my music has not progressed into the mm-hmm. <laughs> modern age very well.
0: I don't remember. Who did your music for Sweat? Tim Vallier. It was Tim. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I was going to ask. That was
1: a great experience. Yeah. I I have so much respect for him.
0: Was that your, I was going to, I was going to ask you if that was your first time working with a composer, but I mean, obviously you worked with Jonathan Cole on on music. So, you know,
1: Marty Magnuson used to write wonderful music and he wrote scores for me. Yeah. And um, he wrote a song for Marvin's Room for
0: me. And what then is I it like working uh, how, how great is that to to work with an actual composer to sit down that that writes your you know, like you said you would you had kind of said it's it's like uh, when with Julius Caesar that it's like a, a cinematic score.
1: Right. right. And when I worked with Tim on sweat, you know, basically we were talking about the transitions between the scenes. And I kind of hesitated and I said, you know, I like underscore and people don't necessarily like underscore in plays because they feel that it's dictating how they should feel about what's being said, that it's coloring the mood. And I'm not sure I'm in that camp. And so I kind of broached the subject and he said, me too. (laughs) And he's, you know, I believe him. He said he wrote more music for Sweat at the time than maybe he had written for any show. Mm Because I think I found fourteen places within the play that I wanted underscore, mm-hmm. and sometimes people remember that, and sometimes they didn't realize that there was music there.
0: Mm-hmm. But that's okay because yeah. it still, I'm sure, elicited right uh, some kind of a visceral, you know, response for, from someone. You know, right. it's it's like we're used to it in movies, we're mm-hmm. used to it on, I know, and in, in TV shows too. I know. Where, we hear it but we don't hear and it and we don't even realize there's music there right yeah. right and Tim and, I, Tim and i had that that very same conversation i'm like why don't more people use it you uh-huh. know but i'm i'm of the i'm of the same way it's i think it should be used yeah. more yeah mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah. And you um, mentioned Vince Crystal.
1: Vince did some great um, music composing for shows. One of them was Calendar Girls. One of them was Superior Donuts. Oh, he
0: did it for uh, for Men on Boats and was great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And
1: then long ago, uh, John Fagan, who may not be very well known anymore in theater circles, but John Gibalisco and I just felt like we'd found this amazing man. His father was a symphony conductor. His mother was a concert pianist and he had met his wife in ballet and they moved to Omaha because I think that's where her family was from. And John Fagan was kind of a, he, he composed music. He was a musician. And so, you know, he would bring his keyboard. He composed the music for our country's good. And I think at least a couple other shows. And we paid him horribly. I mean, and he was so kind to give us such talent, you know. And I can remember John and I would just dream of the day that everything that was done at the playhouse had original music in it. And that's happening now. I mean, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, you know, budgets go so far and sometimes they don't go so far as Mm -hmm. to provide the composition fee. And oh my God, it's, it's such an important part of a piece. And for me, if I'm imagining a play... It's harder for me to see it in my mind. The first thing I do is hear it. Mm-hmm. I hear what it sounds like. I hear things. And, you know, if I can share that with somebody, then it, it goes to another level mm-hmm. with somebody like Tim or somebody like John Fagan or Vince Crystal. And then if I'm working with a great designer, I can kind of say my plebeian version of what I think it looks like. And then Jim Othus hands me a, a rendering. And I go, oh, that's just delightful. (laughs) That'll do. Yeah. Oh my God. He's so brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And he brings everything to the room to start the process of talking about a play as if he's just got a box of crayons and we're going to start to color. You know, Mm -hmm. it always felt that way every time. I don't know how he does it. Mm -hmm. Over 40 years at the Omaha Playhouse. Wow. He'll be a great interview. He's so articulate.
0: What's your favorite curse word?
1: Fuck. (laughs) It is. I I, love it. You know, it's the first word I think of when something is worthy of saying it. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck.
0: (laughs) Thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's so my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit ww.thanky5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's Theatre Doc.